Last week, uh, we had the Advent service of Lessons and Carols, and the concluding gospel reading that we read was the story of the Annunciation, and you have the option of reading both the Annunciation and the Visitation. So I thought last week we read the Annunciation, and so this week we read the story of the Visitation of Mary to Elizabeth, who's going to have John the Baptist. So there's a re- I, I'm going to explain the connection, and I'm going to repeat myself a little bit about Mary and about uh, some of the things I said, because repetition is the mother of learning. But I also want to talk about the first two readings, because these things are all connected. The more reading I've done over the years trying to keep up is, is uh, that seeing that Uh, There is an enormous amount of work that has been done about making the connections between what we read in the Hebrew Bible about King David and about uh, the the progress of of the Jews and how they understand themselves uh, with how they understood who Jesus was. And uh, that's true of Paul, and it's certainly true of the gospel writers, that they had the idea that we're seeing now uh, somehow the fulfillment of the promises of Israel. And so embedded in these readings that we read uh, today from Second Samuel and also from Paul, uh, we see how that is part of this grand narrative and, and movement. And even so with, with Mary and how we understand who Mary might be and her importance. So the first reading from Second Samuel is the prophet Nathan, who sometime later is going to ball out King David for bad behavior, but uh, not today. He's there talking to King David about um, or David's desire to have a temple or a, 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 a house for the tabernacle. And he said, I'm living in one, and I think it's time that the, that the, uh, uh, the Torah be in uh, a tabernacle, in, in a building. So Nathan begins to talk to him about this and uh, says, you know, we're talking together about ultimately building a temple, but I am telling you as a prophet that we need to understand the temple also as the people and the messianic promise of the Davidic line. And why this is important to Christian people is that uh, when during the time of Jesus they always look back to the period of King David and King Solomon as the halcyon days of Israel, the great days. So they were the days that they thought when the Messiah comes, uh, we're going to see coming back now this, this understanding of the divine kingship. So by the time of the writing of the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we're going to see how this understanding of Messiahship goes through a change or a let's say, an emendation. They still believe that, and they believe further now that the Messiah is going to be both kingly and priestly. And so Jesus will embody in his ministry, in his words and in his works, those promises and that understanding. So for the the, the Jews in the time of Jesus, the, the, the priestly aspect sort of was regnant, you know, and prior to that, we had the idea of the movement of the Davidic messiahship. 
And this is very, very important. So we read it uh, in Advent, in the last Sunday of Advent, because it says, here's the promise coming, and this is what it is. That we're going to have now, in the person of Jesus Christ, recapitulated the, all the promises of Israel, and the completion, or the now-not-yet completion of uh, God among us. Advent always spends three weeks on the themes and the preparatory work, anticipation, uh, on the idea of hope, on the idea of expectancy, on the need for repentance. All of those things are part of the Advent season. And then on the fourth Sunday, you always start talking about the birth of Jesus or what's going to happen and how it works, the incarnation. By the way, the incarnation comes from a Latin word which translated literally means in the meat. So Jesus, come, God comes in the meat. He's a human being in, in the flesh. So that's an important thing. So let's talk a, mi a minute about Romans. You know, I'm on this kick about the text and about all the research that's been done. The epistle to the Romans uh, during the early Christian period, like in the 60s or 70s, when the letters were written and beginning to get circulated to, to various people. Here's something that's important to point out, too. When Paul wrote a letter to the Philippians, he wrote a letter to the Philippians and put it in something like the ancient mail. Okay? The deliverer comes to the Philippian church and brings them this writing from Paul. Paul had no idea that he was writing the Bible. Right? He had no idea that he was writing Holy Scripture. The people who received it believed they were receiving a message from the Apostle Paul. And they began to incorporate that in their liturgy and read it in the local place. There were a lot of other places that didn't have uh, the epistle to the Philippians at that time. Or for that matter, the Gospel of Matthew. They may have had selected works. So they had a version, which was the letter that Paul sent. Romans had, in the early copying, at least uh, the ending that we read today, Grace of Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Love of God, some version of that, appears in chapter 14, in chapter 15, and in chapter 16. And that means that there were epistles to the Romans that had three endings. And when they do, we, we, we understand that, we have to see, well, what, well, how come? Well, at the time of, of uh, after Paul wrote Romans, there were at least two views of uh, how we understand Jesus and how we understand what God was like. Some Christians believed that the God of the Old Testament was not the same God as the God of the New Testament. I mean, there are a lot of people who still talk about that, don't they? Because we read a lot of, you know, ethnic divine cleansing passages in the Old Testament. And we read a lot about God's love and, and the forgiveness and stuff in the New Testament. But what Paul is trying to illustrate is something else, and that is, it's the same God. So what we're reading about is how we see the processes of God at work 
now recapitulated in the person of Jesus Christ and why this is important, but we have not turned our back on our sacred literature, which is the location for us seeing, ah, this was beginning to be talked about before Jesus came. And somehow we understand this now in a new way, a better way. And so Paul in Romans today is speaking about that very in a very short passage. You have to read through the, through the, the letter. But you can see that that's the case, that we're talking about um, somehow all of this being put together. And the more you read this, the more you see this process taking place. I think sometimes certainly uh, seminarians suffer from the fact that they get taught these things in discrete packages so that you're, oh, to, oh today we're reading this, you know, or, or we're, stu- this is the Paul class, so we're going to read about Paul doing this, and uh, how it relates to the other stuff is not really focused on, and you have to spend time with this. It took me about two years in seminary before I even understood any of this stuff. I mean, about the biblical scholarship, or about it. I couldn't get it. And the people who had the worst time with this, it, my classmates, were all engineers. <laughs> right? Or chemists, or something, something like that, right? Because you read it, and here you get to it, right? Well, that's not true in theology and biblical studies. You don't go like this. It's part of a process. So Paul, in some way, is, is, is hinting at the whole idea of the processes of God. So um, he's talking about that when we mature emotionally, spiritually, and mentally, we begin to see in our own lives the movement from silence, which Advent is a period, you know, it's like waiting. You know, when you're sitting waiting for something? And so you sit there and you're confused, you have a lack of clarity, you have anxiety. And as you wait and mature, you begin to have certain things revealed to you through your experience. And that brings some understanding of clarity, uh, understanding of what it means to be a human being, and serenity, because you're less anxious. You're less anxious about what's ahead. So, last week... From Luke's Gospel, we read the story of the Annunciation. And I talked about what I'm going to repeat myself about now. Terminology. The Immaculate Conception does not have anything to do with the birth of Jesus. Right? What we refer to when we speak about the virginal conception is that it is alleged that Mary became pregnant by means different than the usual means, or the work of the Spirit. The Immaculate Conception is the doctrine that says that Mary was conceived in her mother without original sin. So in in theological terms, it means she was conceived with post-baptismal grace. I also commented last week that that it's always interesting, G.K. Chesterton said years ago, it's interesting that most people have a great deal of difficulty with the doctrine of original sin, uh, since it is one of the most empirically verifiable doctrines in the Christian church. (laughs) 
just can't, can't do this uh, and so forth. We can get into the details of that when, we, when you want to talk about the heritability of original sin and all of that, but that's for another time, right? So when we speak about this, um, here is what Reginald Fuller said. First of all, here's what Reginald Fuller, the, the biblical, English biblical scholar, said about the virginal conception why this is important. Uh, this is only discussed two times in the New Testament. So the idea that, we, we, we have, that, that the Christian faith rises and falls on the virginal conception is probably not uh, true. But he says this, all that the historian can say with certainty is that the basic elements in this tradition are earlier than Matthew or Luke for the name of Mary her virginity and the function of the Holy Spirit are common to both Matthew and Luke who are otherwise independent of one another at this point. Many would also argue that these traditions can be traced back to the earliest Palestinian stratum of Christianity. So in other words, there must have been something that compelled Matthew and Luke to include it in the text. I, I talked to you about this last week. It bears repeating about the languages. In Isaiah, we read one of the readings from last week. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear in her womb a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, Mighty Counselor. You know? And this was, this, this was talking historically about the birth of Hezekiah, Ahaz, King Ahaz's son whose wife was pregnant and going to have Hezekiah. So when Isaiah wrote it, he wasn't thinking about the birth of Jesus. The word in Hebrew for young woman, for, uh, young woman is Alma, and it means a young woman of marriageable age. In the Greek Old Testament... It was written in Alexandria about 286 BCE for Jews living in Alexandria who did not know how to speak or read Hebrew anymore and wanted to have a copy of the, uh, the, their Bible in the language that they read and spoke. So if you read the passage in Isaiah, it said, Behold a Parthenos. A virgin shall conceive and bear in her womb a son. So it's interesting because Matthew certainly knew Hebrew. Luke may not have known Hebrew, but they both include the Septuagint version in their text. And this substantiates what Fuller says is there were some pains taken to preserve this, to preserve this tradition. I am... I, um, telling you this without prejudice, but it is important to know what the issue is about this, and uh, some people get maybe more exercise than they need to. So today we read the story of the visitation, and I thought as I talk about it, this isn't a guided meditation, but I'm going to read a few lines from Father Thomas Keating. You know, one of the things that he talks about is not just centering prayer, you know, where you sit in silence and it's... Or, 
He also talks about the ancient practice in Western Christianity of what's called Lectio Divina, spiritual reading. So you spend a lot of time reading the Bible and thinking and reflecting about what you've just read and what it might mean. And so when he is talking about the visitation, it shows you, of course, over the years, the way in which he has absolutely gone over, you know, meticulously the text in terms of what it means in his prayer and so forth. So remember the story now. Mary comes to see Elizabeth. She speaks to Elizabeth. The baby in Elizabeth moves when Mary speaks. And uh, Elizabeth is filled with the spirit and says how grateful she is that the mother of uh, our Lord is here to visit her. Keating says, this story is about eternal time breaking into chronological time. Because that's what the, the, the contention is in Christian theology about the birth of Jesus. It is like a dagger thrust into the warp and woof of history, as one biblical scholar would say. So this event occurs, and um, our response to it, and what we learn from reading this and reflecting this, uh, would say, he would say, depends on our personal contribution as living cells in the body of Christ. We are lived in by God. We are not alone. God is with us not as a statue or picture, but as energy all ready to direct all our actions moment by moment. Prayer, and when he says this, he doesn't mean just centering prayer or meditation. He means the liturgy and our public worship on a regular basis. Prayer is the action that sensitizes us to the divine energy, which Paul calls spirit or pneuma, which is the Greek word, which we translate as God. Mary did not go to evangelize or counsel Elizabeth. She went to prepare diapers. And of course, there's, an, there's a, a reminder that God comes, the spirit comes in the midst of the ordinary and the commonplace. She stayed with her for three months while Elizabeth was getting ready to have the baby. The presence that was in Mary was transmitted through her voice. Following Mary's example, the fundamental practice for healing the wounds of the false self-system is to fulfill the duties of our job in life. Affection and esteem, security and survival, and uh, power and control. Those are the three energy centers that, that Keating talks about all the time. They're from our pre-rational past in developmental psychology. And all our lives we have to struggle with these things in one form or another. You know, We have to decide how we're going to understand their necessity but not be controlled by them in a way that takes us off the rails emotionally, spiritually, and mentally. And so paying attention and doing your job is an important thing. Dean Parsons at Neshota House told us when we took How to Say Your Prayers 1A, actually it was called ascetical theology. 
<laughs> Leave it to the church to come up. With it, right? But he used to always talk about how important it was for each of us to fulfill our duties of state, which sounds like some sort of a political or international relations thing. But in the classic spiritual life in Western Christianity, the duties of state are get up and brush your teeth. Not just that. <laughs> but it, it's an example of the ordinary and commonplace aspects of our job and how you, you need to begin to uh, mature an understanding that that continues. I told you the story a long time ago. Well, maybe not so long. I tell all my stories all the time. I used to worry about it, but now I don't care. <laughs> the... the, the uh, I came home, I worked for my family from the time I was 12, my family's business, Christmas, Easter holiday, all summer, uh, until I was 18, and then I went to work full-time and went to school at night in the evening. And I would come home, I'd take the train from 3rd and Townsend down to San Mateo, and I'd come in and have dinner. I said to say to my mother, I'd say, "Geez, you know, I'm getting up at six o'clock in the morning. I'm taking the train to the city. I'm working all day. Then I'm going, and then I get in the train and come back down here. And then I eat dinner and go to bed. And I do the same thing the next day, day after day after day after day." And my mother said, "David, this." is life, right? And, it, you, you know, there's wisdom in that, you know. Sometimes we get controlled by our profession and our vocation and the necessities that surround us around all those things. We need to learn how to create balance. One of the great things, I've been here for a while now at St. Luke's, and one of the things that I heard from the first, when I first got here and still do from people is, we're trying to get more balance in our life. We need to have more balance, right? Well, it's true. But figuring that out may be the big, the big issue. Mary's voice transformed the potential in another person without her saying anything, without, you know, giving her a, a lecture, advice. The tra transmission, which is what he's talking about when Mary speaks with Elizabeth, and Elizabeth, transmission is the capacity to awaken in other people their own potentiality to become divine. Not giving people advice. There's quite a difference between sharing your practical wisdom that you've learned over the years, your experience, and giving people advice about how to live their lives. You know, we all know the difference. One of my professors in seminary said, unwanted advice has the odor of ancient fish. <laughs> So this week, uh, see if you can follow Mary's example in all, every area of your life where it may be necessary, focusing on the idea of being an instrument of transformation, not by giving people advice, 
but by reflecting back to them the divine that is in you. Amen.